Everybody ready to do a little work this morning? We got a lot, a lot of ground to cover. There were three points in this message and like 17 sub points, but I cut out point number three before last night. So just to try and get to the next service. If you got a Bible, if you would open up to Jeremiah 17, we'll start there, put a marker in Isaiah 40, then put a marker in Romans 8. If you feel festive, turning to three different spots. So Jeremiah 17, we'll start there. Isaiah 40, we'll get to later in the message. And we will finish the message with Romans chapter 8. We're going off topic this weekend, answering a very, very important question. But before I present the question, I want to provide a little context. Have you ever been in a really difficult season before? Anybody? Yeah. Have, I, I love your response to this. You're going to tell me about it. Have you ever been through a prolonged season of hurt before? One of the things that happens, I've noticed, with a good number of Christ followers, when we go through difficult seasons, even though Jesus told us there's going to be trouble and tribulation, you will experience trials and tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Even though he told us to expect that, it's like we still don't. And because we don't expect difficulty, when it arrives on our doorstep, if we're not careful, we begin to question if God is good. And when we, we begin to question whether or not God is good, here's what we tend to do next. Can I even trust God? We're asking the question this weekend, can I trust God? Jeremiah 17 shows the two options related to your trust. There are only two. I'm gonna kind of read this backwards on purpose. Jeremiah 17, starting in verse seven, says, but blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. Watch, watch what the blessing of God looks like in the life of a person who puts their trust in God. They're like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat of the valley desert or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. If I would have asked you before we started this message, how many of you want your life to look like that? Who would have said yes? Okay, I just told you how. To place your trust in the Lord. Here's the problem though. If you don't place your trust in God, you place your trust in others, yourself, or your stuff. Those are the options. It's God or anything else. Now watch what happens in the life of a person who does not put their trust in God. Let's read verses five and six. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who woke up this morning and said, you know what I feel like being cursed. <laughs> cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, including yourself. You do fall into the mere human category and so do I. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans who rely on human strength watch this, and turn their hearts away from the Lord. Isn't it fascinating that when someone doesn't put their trust in God and they put their trust in human strength, God connects it to their hearts turning away from him. Watch God describe their life. Verse six, they are like stunted shrubs in the desert of the valley with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited, salty land. If I would have asked you before this message started, who wants their life to look like that? Who would have raised their hand? Nobody. And yet, many of us still choose not to completely trust God, even though God clearly outlined what life would look like if and when we chose not to. Can I trust God? Can you trust God? 
Truthfully, the question really isn't, can you? The question is, will you? And so my assignment today is to try and help grow your trust in God. Two things I want to give you with a good amount of subpoints. I hope you're ready to take notes. Here's point number one. If you're going to grow your trust in God, point number one, you need to grow your knowledge of God. Not what you think about God. Your knowledge of God based on what God himself has said about God. The question we ask when we go through really hard seasons typically isn't who is God. We typically tend to ask where is God? Because we essentially think if God is good and God were here, he would not have let this bad thing happen to me. So, so what does that say about God and what does that say about what, where God is? Because if God really is good and this bad thing happened to me, then that either means God isn't with me or God isn't good. See how the enemy just starts walking in this conversation of doubt. But really, the open door was us not expecting things to be difficult. It's really not a trust thing, it's an expectation thing. But let's try and do this exercise of, of growing our trust in God. But we have to start with asking the right question. And the right question is not, where is God when things are difficult for me? The right question to ask is, who is God even when things are difficult for me? Yesterday morning I was going, I was leaving the house early for the office. Saturday is my long day of the week. And the day before, we had to put our puppy down, uh, and it was, it was a rough day. She was pregnant, it was just rough, and, and Max in at five, he'd had his birthday a couple days earlier. It was just a sad way to, to kind of celebrate your birthday week. And so he was a little bit more latchy, and he saw me heading towards the door, and he races after me. And he says, Dad, where are you going? And I said, well, I have to go to the office. He said, but why? I said, because I have to get ready to preach. He said, but why? I said, because I have to preach. He said, but why? I said, because that's my job. He said, but why? I said, because I wanna take care of you and mom and the boys and Riley. Okay, and he was sad. Here's why he was sad as I left the house. Because he was more focused on where I was than who he knows me to be. It was actually a good thing that I was going to work yesterday. But because in his mind, the most important question was, where's dad? He was disappointed when he felt like dad was somewhere he didn't want him to be. The question isn't, where is God when things are hard for me? The question is, who is God? Here's another reason I've seen many believers lose their trust in God. It's due to their perspective of what God promised to do for them. Well, because God didn't do what I believe he said he would do, I can't trust him to do anything at all anymore. Many of the promises we think God makes to us are about what he will do for us, when most of the promises God makes to us are about who he promises to be for us. If you've been here for any amount of time, Exodus 33, you know this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Exodus 34 obviously comes next. It's a continuation of the holy moment between God and Moses. I'll bring you up to speed on this part of the conversation. Moses says, God, you keep telling me I'm going to the promised land, but you're not telling me who's going to help me get the people there. And God says, how about I myself go with you? And I will give you rest and everything will go well for you. And Moses goes, whoa, 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 whoa. You mean there's actually a chance you might not go? Well, let's talk about this right now. I'm not going if you don't go. Don't ask me to leave if you're not going to. Incredible moment between two best friends. God says, I'm going with you. Moses says, Preston's paraphrase, okay, well, if you're going, then prove it. If I found favor in your sight, then prove it for me. Will you show me a side of yourself your glorious presence that you've never shown me before. I think God was actually pleased that Moses asked for this. God says, absolutely, but I cannot allow your eyes to see my glory because it'd kill you. So I'm gonna cover your eyes and then I'm gonna pass. Exodus 34, I want you to think about 
all of the things, first, think about all the things Moses could have asked God for in that moment. This is God's man. He could have said, hey, when we get into the land of the promise, will you give me the biggest house in the land? Will you give me the most chariots? Will you make sure I never lose a battle? He could have asked God for anything, but what does he ask God for? More of him. Because this is what best friends do. I don't need more of that stuff. I tried it, it's not gonna do what I want, but you know what will? More of you. Okay, that's, think of all the things he could have asked for. Now I want you to think about all of the things that God could have said as his glorious presence passed before Moses in a way he never had before. Think about all the things the God of the universe can say. Now I'm gonna to read to you what he actually says. Exodus 34, verses five and six, and then we're gonna walk through four of the five things. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there. And he, God, proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is our God. When you are tempted to ask the question, where is God? Stop yourself and ask the question, who is God? Where he is doesn't matter to me nearly as much as who he said he is. And this is part of what he says. This, this passage right here is quoted all throughout scripture. That's how important it is. So let's click quickly walk through who is God when times are difficult for you and me. First, he's the God of all grace. 1 Peter 5.10 tells us that. Not just the God of grace, the God of all grace. What is grace? Interestingly enough, I looked this word up in Webster's Dictionary and I was fascinated to find what the first definition of grace was. Webster says, Grace is unmerited divine assistance. Divine? I thought we were trying to pretend there wasn't a God. <laughs> unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration or sanctification. That almost sounds like a Bible commentary. Here's how Pastor Robert taught this to me years ago. Grace is giving me what I do not deserve. When I teach on grace and mercy, I like to kind of use Robert as an illustration from my past. Uh, quick hits, first two years of my employment at Gateway Church, my heart was in a toxically terrible place. I mean, there was nothing honorable towards God in my heart at the time. I was an insecure, wounded little boy who was trying to act like the king of the universe. And I don't know if you've ever tried to walk that path, it never ends well. But God does redeem it if you allow him to break you. For the first two years, I was in a terrible place, and truth be told, and Robert knows these details now, I hated him because I felt like he didn't give me the attention that I wanted. We didn't do the things that I wanted to do together. I was just a jacked-up human. And so the enemy got into a place, and I allowed myself to get to a place where I hated my boss for two years. Then... I won't name it, but the biggest church in the country at the time came and offered me a job to be their student ministry pastor and said I could bring my right hand and our worship pastor and they would pay us 30% more than all three of us were presently being paid. Most of my friends were saying this is the opportunity of a lifetime. And the Lord said, Preston, what are you going to do? I said, well, I think I'm going to stay at Gateway. And I'll never forget, I felt the Lord go, so I put what your friends are telling you is the best opportunity in this nation, in your lap, and you didn't have to do a thing, and you're gonna stay at the place where you've been screaming at me for the last two years? I go, well, I didn't really think about it that, like that. And he goes, then shut your mouth and fall on your face. It was one of the holiest moments I've ever experienced. Little did I know as I was touring this 16,000 seat sanctuary this church was finishing out that I had had a ruptured appendix for several days. I had an abscess larger than a baseball. I was going septic and didn't even know it. Hadn't gone to the bathroom in four days. 
We get back to Dallas. I tell Holly, I've got to go to the emergency room. I go to the emergency room. They do emergency surgery. I mean, I'm on, on the operating table in less than 30 minutes. I come out of the surgery, had to stay in the hospital for eight days. Robert comes to visit me, and he knew I had just visited this church and that they had offered me a job. And I'll never forget, I'm in a hospital gown. There was nothing beautiful about this moment. I mean, you, you, when God wants to humble you, he will stop at nothing. Robert comes into the room. He leaned over and gave me a hug. And he's catching up. How are you feeling? I said, great. He said, what do you want to talk about your week this week? I said, sure, if you want to. He said, well, what are you thinking? And I said, I'm going to stay. And I'll never forget, not deserving it one bit, the man gave me a raise that I most certainly did not deserve. And he said, Preston, I would have been proud of you if you would have gone. But I'm even more proud of you that you stayed. As he walked out of the room, I felt the Lord say, that is grace because you do not deserve what he just did. How many thousands of times has the God of the universe extended grace to you as the God of all grace, giving you what you do not deserve? What else is God? Who is God, especially when times are difficult for you, for me? Second, he's the God of mercy. 2 Corinthians 1 tells us he's the father of mercies. What's the definition of mercy? According to Webster, Mercy is compassion or forbearance shown especially to an offender or to one subject to one's power. The way Robert described it to me years ago was this. Mercy is not giving me what I do deserve. I've told this story before. I, I love to tattle on myself so that we all remember we are all just broken humans at the feet of the cross. 22-ish years old, Robert, up until that point, I answered directly to him when Gateway first started, and I loved it. And then he hired an executive pastor to be my boss. So he sits me down one day and he says, hey, I've hired someone to be your oversight. I want you to think what you would do if you were Robert, if you heard a 22-year-old punk kid, okay? This is before the story I just told you, but I want you to think about what you would do if you would have heard me say these words. He said, I've hired somebody to be your oversight. And here's what I said. Well, I sure hope this guy is one of the three best youth pastors in America because I can't see myself learning from anybody but them. I just want you to imagine what you would have done. Probably not what he did. He totally forgot it. He showed me mercy because I deserve to be fired with that kind of garbage. The youth ministry was 75 people. It wasn't even 10% of the church's attendance. Like I was getting my tail kicked, but not by ministry, by my own pride. And he extended me mercy. He did not give me what I did deserve. Question, how many times? Has the Father of mercies extended mercy to you, not given you what you did deserve? How many thousands of times in your lifetime has he done this? Just in case you're not getting a picture of this and how incredible this is, let's go a little bit further. The problem with most people is not that they don't understand grace or mercy. It's that they don't understand what they do and don't deserve. So let's illustrate this. This is a little morbid, and I hope not to trigger anybody, but I have to go to this length to really drive this point home. I want you to imagine that you're a parent. Don't think about your children, because it might get a little too serious for you. But just imagine you're a parent, you have a child, you have one child, it's a son. And let's imagine that one day I break into your home and I kill your son. I have a question for you. How would you handle it? 
Let me ask an even more direct question. Would you give me what I don't deserve? And would you not give me what I do deserve? Some of you would immediately go into an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, Old Testament fire. Not grace, not mercy. Truthfully, I don't know that I would blame you. Let me remind you something about you and something about me. My sin killed his son. And I want to show you in Scripture God's response to me and my sin killing his son. Ephesians chapter 2, a breathtakingly amazing verse, passage of verses. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, he is rich in not giving us what we do deserve. Why? Because of his great love with which he loved and loves us. Even when we were dead in trespasses. What was our biggest trespass? Our sin killed his son. Even in that, God made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved. My sin killed his son and here was his response. He didn't just forgive me and extend mercy. He gave me grace. And let me remind you how. He said, not only do I forgive you, I'm going to give you the inheritance of my son. I killed him. How can, how can I trust God? Here would be my question. How can you not trust God? That's his response to me killing his son? How could I not trust a God like that? I don't deserve any of that kind of treatment. But it gets even better than that. The next thing God says about himself is he's slow to anger. He is the God who is slow to anger. One of Satan's favorite things to say, favorite lies to spin, is this. Ooh, God is mad at you. Ooh, he hates you right now. Ooh, God is angry with you right now. Yes, God has every right to be mad at me. To the point of his worst wrath. But he has chosen to be slow to anger with me. Let's illustrate this. Did you ever break something when you were growing up that was very valuable to your mother? Maybe China. Maybe something her great-great-grandmother passed down to her and you thought it would be fun to play with it like it was a football, and you just destroyed it. You took her favorite piece of china for, from her great-great-grandmother, and you said, hey, mom, catch! The lid comes off. Mom tries to catch both pieces, and in doing so, catches neither. Both go to the ground and are shattered. Question, what was your immediate response? I'll tell you what mine was, run. Get out now. Why? Because I didn't want to see what would come next. Let me say it this way. Typically, the more hurt someone's heart is, the more angry they are in their everyday behavior. But this illustration gets much worse right here and right now. Because I need to remind you what God has that you and I have broken. That he has every right to erupt in anger towards us. You know what we broke? His heart. That's Genesis 6.6. 6. God looked at the state of things on the earth and how wicked and sinful man was. And what does scripture say in Genesis 6, 6? And it broke God's heart. You were afraid when you broke your mother's most special piece of china. Can you imagine how afraid you should be after breaking the heart of the God of the universe? 
He has every right to stand over my bed and every morning I wake up, start my day off by screaming at me. And yet he never has. Because he is slow to anger by choice. How can I trust God? How can you not trust the God who has every right to be angry with you but chooses to be slow in anger towards you. Here's the next thing God says. Remember, we're passing uh, abounding in steadfast love because we're going to talk about that in point number two. But the fifth thing God says about himself is he is the faithful God. The presence of God's faithfulness is not proven in my lack of suffering or in my lack of difficult seasons. The presence of God's faithfulness is proven in the midst of my suffering and even in my sin. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I don't deserve for him to be faithful to me, and neither do you. Let me illustrate. When Holly and I were dating before we got married, I broke up with her twice. I was an absolute idiot. It doesn't matter the reasons. I was just stupid. But by God's grace and Holly's, she took me back. I just want you to imagine being in love with someone and they leave you once. And then they come back to you. Oh, baby, I'm sorry. We take me back. Some of you are like, our pastor is an absolute moron. I've been trying to tell you this for a long time. She took me back. Six, seven months later, yeah, I think I'm going to leave. And two weeks later, I think I want to spend forever with you. I just want you to think, how would you have handled me? Before you get too judgmental, Let me paint an even clearer picture about you. You know how many times you've gone to God? Do you know how many times I've gone to God and said, I want to be so close to you, I want to be with you forever, and then 10 minutes later, I step into an area of dark sin and turn my back on him. And then an hour later, I come groveling, saying, Daddy, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. And two hours later, I do. I asked you how you would handle somebody leaving you two times. Now I want to ask you, how would you handle someone leaving you more than two million times? Every time I sin, I turn my back on him. We do not deserve his faithfulness to us. And yet, he says, Preston, I'm going on record. I'm using this holy moment with Moses to let you know something about me. I am the God who is faithful. Let me show you a verse in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2.13. says, even if we are faithless, even if we are completely absent of faithfulness, God remains faithful. Here's what I believe he's saying. I'll personalize it just like I want you to. Preston, I don't love you because of you or because of what you do. I love you because I love you. Please don't let that sound simple to you. When he said that to me earlier this week, I was undone. You talk about liberating. You don't love me because of me. You don't love me because of what I do. It doesn't mean I'm going to stop doing. It just means it's going to be a lot easier to have a pure heart when I do what I feel like you're asking me to do because I'm not doing it to earn your love or affection. Because you love me 
just because you love me. That is a perfectly eternal, faithful God, especially when we've cheated on him millions of times. Point number two. Second thing, if you're going to grow your trust in God, you're going to need to grow your awe of God. Do you know how hard it is to follow God when you aren't in awe of God? (laughs) It's one of the reasons I love his transcendence, because his transcendence keeps me from bringing him down to my level. On the flip side of the coin, do you know how easy it is to follow God when you're full of the awe of God? Psalm 33, verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. This brings in the fear of the Lord. And and most people, when they hear the fear of the Lord, they think of being scared of. God does not want you to be scared of him. This is why he says, oh, I am love. Here's what you need to know about love. Perfect love casts out all fear. So the last thing I want is you flinching when I draw near to you. That's not the fear of God, being afraid of God. Here's Preston's, Simpleman's definition of the fear of God. It's not being scared of God, it's being overwhelmed by God. This is the awe of God. The greater your awe, of God, the more godly your perspective about everything going on in your life. Why should we be in awe of God? Because you're either going to be in awe of the obstacles in front of you or in awe of the one who is with you standing in front of them. The greater your awe of your obstacle, the harder it is to trust God. The greater your awe of God, the easier it is to put your trust in God. So how do we grow our awe of God? Three things and we'll be done. First, grow your awe by meditating on his scope. I could not find a word in any language to accurately describe his immeasurable amazingness. And so I settled for the word scope. If you put a marker in Isaiah 40, we're going to read a couple of verses here and we're going to walk these bad boys out. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26 Isaiah 40, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because it is a calibrating chapter of scripture on our great God and what my perspective of his greatness must be at all times. Isaiah 40, verse 26 says, look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army. Speaking of God, one after another after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single star is missing. Okay, I don't know if you've ever tried to research how many stars there are in all of the galaxies. There's a lot of discrepancy, a lot of opinion, but they say there's up to about 125 billion galaxies like our Milky Way galaxy. And in our galaxy, they say there's about, you know, 100 billion stars to 200 billion stars. It just depends who you hear from what they say, but here, here's the point. This is the, a guesstimation, because truthfully, the only one who knows how many stars down to the exact number of stars is the God who knows each of the stars' names and makes sure they are always in their proper place. Essentially, it's somewhere around 200 billion trillion stars. Think about how great a number one trillion is. Can you imagine 200 billion trillion? And yet he knows every single star's name and makes sure every star is in its place. Everyone's so in awe of artificial intelligence these days that they're up in arms and worried about it rather than being so in awe of the Creator's intelligence that we worship Him for it. My kids yesterday were sitting around the table before I came to preach, and my daughter said, Daddy, do you think artificial intelligence is going to take over the earth? No cap, this is exactly what I said instantly. 
You can tell I got a house full of kids this week. <laughs> Mama's got all her chicks in, under the roof for Thanksgiving. She goes, do you think artificial intelligence is gonna take over the earth? I said, no, Jesus is. Not a bumper sticker, it's a fact. Why is everyone so up in arms about our fit? When you can tell me the name of every star, I'll get impressed. But just because you can write some article that I don't have to write myself, not that impressive. <laughs> Why do we spend more time talking about, listen to this word, artificial, fake intelligence? And like a shiny object, we're like, woo! When's the last time we opened up Isaiah 40 and went, look at my creator's intelligence. 200 billion trillion stars? Hey, I love it when he brags like this about himself. Preston, I know all their names. Don't ever look in my direction and tell me I'm not a god of the smallest detail. This is who I am. And I'm not a man that I should change. Let's keep going. Isaiah 40, verse 22. God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. Figurative language. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. I'm going to connect Psalm 139 and Isaiah 40, verse 22. Psalm 139, David says, and, and when I awaken, you're still there with me. In other words, David says, I got a revelation that you stand over my bed every night of my life staring at me. Okay, when was the last time laying in your bed before you closed your eyes, you looked up at the God who sits above the circle of the earth and below you are not even like a grasshopper to him. I'm going to show you that in a second. When was the last time you were so undone by his immeasurable greatness? that you slept more peacefully than any night prior. Most of us don't sleep well because we make our problems infinitely larger than our immeasurable God. Let's talk about his hand for a second, and this is gonna get fun. Some of you have seen me do this before, but I, this is one of the ways that I consistently calibrate myself from time to time as I go in to be alone with the Lord, of who I am actually with. Isaiah 40 verse 12 says, God is saying this, who else has held the oceans in his hand? Okay, let's do a little test. Would you please look down at your palm and draw a circle in the palm of your hand? Okay, I want you to look at how large that circle is. And now I want to tell you how much water there is on the earth because 71% of the earth's surface is actually water. God says, who else can hold 912,500 cubic miles of water in their hand? I'm sorry, Preston, remind me how big your problem is? He says, who else? This is figurative language because you're about to see his hand is even bigger than that. Then he says, who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Okay, I want you just to imagine, just get a picture in your mind of our Milky Way galaxy and how large it is. Now get a picture of 125 billion galaxies. And here's what your immeasurably great God says to you about himself. Who measures all of that like this? I'm sorry, Preston. How big is your problem with this measurement? 125 billion galaxies. What's going on at work? Can I trust God? How can we not trust the God who measures, whose sand is so big that he measures 125 billion galaxies with two of his fingers? It gets even better than that though. Isaiah 40 verse 15 says, God picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. Can you just get a picture of a grain of sand in your mind's eye right now? How big must his hand be? Now, go all the way out like you were on a SpaceX rocket that actually didn't explode eight minutes into liftoff. And you were looking back at the earth. 
and now imagine it to be the size of a grain of sand. How big must a finger be to lift up our planet like it were a grain of sand? I'm sorry, Preston, how heavy is the weight you're carrying that I'm carrying with you? But what he says about his hand gets even better than that. Isaiah 41, verse 13, God says to Israel, I hold you by the hand. The God who holds the earth like a grain of sand is the God who refuses to ever let go of your hand. Can you even wrap your mind around this? Think of how big his hand is. 125 billion galaxies. Preston's paraphrase of Isaiah 41, verse 13. Preston, can I tell you what my favorite thing to do? The sun sits at my right hand. Think about it. If he's holding me by the right hand, it's with his left hand. Preston, can I tell you one of my favorite things? to do with my left hand, it's to hold you by the hand. Out of all of the things a hand that big could do, he says, my favorite thing is holding yours. Can I really trust God? How can you not trust a God? Because one of his favorite things is holding you by the hand. Not just all the days of your life, but for eternity. Second thing, if you're going to grow your awe, grow your awe by meditating on his deeds. I can't camp here. I've already gone a little long. Psalm 66 verse 3 says, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Your enemies cringe before your mighty power. I love this verse. It is the consistently miraculous deeds of God which consistently remind the devil of his monumental demise. I learned this early on, starting when I was 13, as I started to read the stories of God's miraculous power and faithfulness. When I read about the walls of Jericho going down just because of obedience, they just walked and blew a trumpet. When I read the story that God saved an entire nation of people through one woman. When I read the story of Daniel having this, the faith to stand up, up against those opposing God's ways, so much so he was thrown into a den of lions and his miraculously, immeasurably powerful God would not allow the lions to even touch him. When I read the story of a virgin young woman being trusted by God to carry God's own son. Miraculously give birth to him. Watch him grow for 33 years. And then Satan, think he had won, crucifying the son of God. And when that 13-year-old boy got to the part where the son of God got up by the power of the spirit on that third day, I don't know how your faith does not rise. One of the fastest ways to grow in awe of God is simply get in God's word and read the incredible testimonies of God's miraculous power. His miraculous power and what he has always done with it is one of the ways he shows his people his faithfulness. And every time I read a story, that's not just a Bible story, every time I read history, and see how immeasurably great our God is. How can I not trust him more? He parted the waters of the Red Sea. Go out to Saguaro. Stand on the shore of Saguaro Lake. Yell and scream. Raise your hands. See if the waters part in front of you. We read these stories and we minimize them. If I were your enemy, that's exactly what I would try and get you to do. You want to grow your awe of God? Consistently read through his testimony 
of his immeasurably miraculous power. Here's the third thing. If you want to grow your awe, grow your awe by meditating on his love. If you put a marker in Romans 8, let's read it and we'll be done. One of, in my opinion, the greatest passages of Scripture on the love of God and Christ Jesus. Romans 8, starting in verse 35. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Really great passage for this conversation. Or if we're persecuted, or if we're hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death. As the scriptures say, for your sake, we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. Verse 37, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life. Neither angels, certainly not demons. Neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, no thing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I really trust God? How can you not? I just spent the better part of 45 minutes telling you all the reasons you don't deserve and I don't deserve to be loved by God. And yet, not only does he love us, his love for us is eternal and perfect. Paul says, here's what I've learned about the love of God. Everywhere I go, it beats me there. David said a similar thing. Everywhere I go, you are. Why is God everywhere you go? Because he's that obsessively in love with you. Here's the picture. Just get a picture of you and you're just walking through your everyday life. You go to the grocery store. You know what got there first? The love of God. You go to the post office. Know what got there first before you licked that stamp? The unbridled love of God. You go to the gym. Acting like you're all that. Know what got there first? The love of God. You make a choice to sin. Not deserving it one bit. Know what's still there? The love of God. Everywhere you go, his love goes too. Want to grow your awe of God? Spend more time every day of your life trying to wrap your mind around God's love for you. Okay, one more illustration to show you what not trusting in God looks like. Oh man, will you jump up here? Do you mind? You won't have to talk, don't worry. People get freaked out when I do that. What's your name? Logan. Logan, nice to meet you, Preston. Okay, Logan here is you, all right? Logan, this Bible right here represents everything you are begging God for. Everything you're praying for, the call of God in your life, the marriage you're praying for, the family you're praying for, the job you're praying for, the provision you're praying for, the friends you're praying for, the mentors you're praying for, everything you're begging God for is represented right there. You're oh so close. Scripture says, though, Logan, that you and I see in this fallen world, as limited human beings, we see through a glass dimly lit. It means you and I on this side of heaven will never see anything completely clearly. So let's illustrate this, right? Because you might be thinking, oh, I just walk right over there and grab that thing. But if you see through a glass dimly lit, Let's illustrate to the people what that actually looks like. Would you please put the palms of your hands over your eyes? Okay, I'm gonna spin you around. Okay, I want you to help him. Go find it. Okay, you know what stinks? is we all have people in our life who think they know how to get there, 
but they all see through a glass dimly lit too. I want you to go find it. Without their help, go find it. Just like God, isn't it? <laughs> Move the cheese. All right, my man. Good try. That's what most of us look like on our best day going after what we believe are the promises of God. That's what not trusting God looks like. Now let's see what trusting God looks like. Because you still on this side of heaven, see through a glass dimly lit, cover up your eyes. Turn to your left. I'm right here. Take a step forward. Take another step forward. I'm with you all the way to the end. Take a step forward. Take another step forward. Take another step forward. Take another step forward. Logan, there's something I have been preparing for you since before the beginning of time. And if you will walk with me, it won't be easy. But I assure you of this, if you trust me, open up your eyes. We will get there together. Thanks, man. Would you stand? For we walk by and not by. Why do we walk by faith? Why does God make us walk by faith? Why did he set it up so we saw through a glass dimly lit? I will tell you why. I believe it's two reasons. First, because if you could see your way all the way there, once you get there, you'd take all the credit for arriving there. But secondly, and far more importantly, here's the reason I believe he asks us to walk like this, so close to him, trusting him fully, because it necessitates us leaning on him. And he so badly wants our lean that he set up our lives to work in such a way where we must trust him. The question isn't, can you trust God? The question is, will you? <laughs>